big uh, thank you to the worship team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll have them all back. So, um, here we go. It's my first message of uh, 2019, and I've been praying about, well, what can I share with you as the church to, to encourage you at the start of a year? And uh, what I've sensed the Lord saying to me was that I should speak about His sovereignty, that He is, in fact, Lord over all. We might not always like what God does, but that doesn't change the fact that He is sovereign over all. And this is actually a tremendously encouraging Christian belief. There are two ways of saying Jesus is Lord. The first is when we mean, you know, He's Lord of my life. And that is probably the most common sense in which Christians use the term Jesus is Lord. But probably there's a, there's a better way to understand the term Jesus is Lord. And that is when we're making the statement, He is Lord over all. That's really the biblical sense of the word when we say Jesus is Lord. Now, the term the sovereignty of God is rather a stuffy theological term. It's not really your everyday breakfast conversation. The idea of sovereignty, of someone ruling over others, is, is foreign to us. We don't live under a monarch or a dictator. Even people that do live in a monarchy, for example, in Great Britain, you know, it's kind of a figurehead with a prime minister running the government in reality. But the Old Testament talks a lot about the sovereignty of God, and it always pictures God as being a great king ruling over the universe, ruling over us and the nations. When the Bible speaks about Him being Lord, it's speaking about God's authority and God's power over everything and everyone. Just let that sink in. And so today in the sermon, I want to speak about what, what is the sovereignty of God? And most importantly, what does it mean for us in our daily lives? Let's start by considering the very name of God. When first asks God, what is your name? Who shall I say to the people that you are? He says, I am who I am. That's where we get the word Yahweh from. Is my mic dropping out? It is. Uh, let me move to the handheld mic. I, so I think even in the very name of God, when someone says, I am who I am, it, it speaks of his, his sovereignty, his power. And when I did a search in my NIV Bible for the term Sovereign Lord, it came back with 284 references, only two of which are in the New Testament. 282 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Sovereign Lord. In the Hebrew, that would be Adonai Yahweh. 
There's only uh, two references to this title, Sovereign Lord, in the New Testament. Here's the one from Revelation 6. And this is where the the saints are crying out to God in verse 10 of chapter 6. They're saying, how long, Sovereign Lord, uh, will it be until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and, and bring about the consummation of all things? And so here in this critical situation where people are suffering. They're referring to the sovereignty of God and appealing to to God's sovereignty. Interestingly enough, the Greek word for sovereign is despotes, where we get our term uh, despot from. It it refers to an absolute ruler, a person who's not elected into power, but they have complete power over everything. And we know from Revelation 19 that Jesus is also referred to as being the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So implicit in the very name of God is the idea of him being sovereign over all things. I think this is poetically captured in Psalm 2, if we can move to that slide. And I think it's a very fitting psalm for our age, for us as Christians How many of you are aware of the terrible persecution that is happening now in China against Christians and against the Christian churches? Some of the pastors of the biggest mega churches in China have now been detained. People are disappearing. When we hear about the news about all the wonderful developments in China, actually in terms of the Christian church and freedom and persecution, things are going backwards rapidly. It's a dire situation in China right now for Christians. There's terrible persecution happening in Syria, in the Middle East, in Nigeria, where we have missionaries. Uh, People are being killed regularly for their faith. And so we need to be reminded of Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand And the rulers gather together against the Lord and His anointed one, His people. Let us break their chains, they say. Throw off their fetters. People are saying, who is this God? What do we need Him for? Let's let's do what we want to do. And how does God respond? Verse 4 of Psalm 2. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he rebukes them in his anger. I read the the letter that the pastor of one of the largest churches in China who'd been detained had written. He'd, He'd given a letter to a lawyer and said, if ever I disappear, I want you to make this letter public. And in the letter, he talks about how he loves China and how he prays for the government of China but that his heart's desire is for the Chinese people that they would would know the Lord. Quite a moving letter. I think I posted it on our church Facebook page. Here's another psalm that talks about the the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in heavens, in the heavens, and He does as He pleases. Friends, what we believe about the sovereignty of God 
is very, very important for this reason. There is a direct relationship between what you and I understand about God's sovereignty and our personal happiness. And I want to explain this relationship in the sermon because this is huge. There is a direct relationship between your and my understanding of God's sovereignty and God's power and how happy we are in our everyday lives. What we believe about the goodness of God and the power of God gets lived out every day and felt in our hearts. The Bible teaches that God is 100% good and that He is also 100% sovereign over all things. And many Christians have a hard time believing this because we, we zero in on our lives and we think, well, how could God be really Lord of all and sovereign over all things if this is going on in my life? I have this problem. That's going on. But as Christians, we've got to hold together these two ideas that God is good, that God is love. And also that God is sovereign. And there can be a real battle to hold those two together sometimes. But let's unpack this, this hypothesis of mine. What about those who believe there is no God? And of course, there are many of those in our society today. They believe that God is is neither good nor all-powerful, because how could he be? He doesn't exist. They look around at the chaos in the world and they say, there is no God. Where does that leave you emotionally? Well, it leaves you on your own. It leaves you confused. It leaves you not knowing what's right and what's wrong. It leaves you with the understanding that there is no justice, that, that people get away with terrible things, that the poor may suffer and it'll never be made up to them. Truth be told, if you drill down into the atheistic worldview, it is profoundly disappointing. But let's think about what about those who believe in the love of God, but not in the power of God over all things. Where does that leave them? Well, with a weak God. With a God whose hands are tied. With a God who's created himself into a corner. Who wants to be able to do things but, but somehow can't because he's delegated authority and now he's in a bit of a jam. Or he lacks jurisdiction to be able to act. There's a movement today called open theism. Open theism. It's not a good idea. But this is the idea, and it's becoming more popular in Christian circles. It's the idea that God only knows the future as, as kind of a set of options, and he even isn't quite sure what people are going to do and choose. That God doesn't really know the future. He can only have a guess at it like the rest of us. And sadly, many Christians today are closet open theists. They have this view of God that God doesn't really know what's going to happen next and stuff happens and God wished he could change it but couldn't. 
I think when we just focus in on the love of God and the goodness of God and we, we neglect to focus in on the sovereignty of God, again, it results in, in fear and insecurity and confusion within our hearts. Thirdly, there, there are those who believe in the sovereignty of God, but they don't emphasize the, the goodness of God. I think in some senses, Islam is very close to that view. They have a very strong belief in the sovereignty of God, which is why in the Islamic world, when often things happen, they'll simply say, well, Allah wills it. Fatalism fits in here. And there's a fear in, in fatalism. You don't know what's happening next. Uh, as Christians, we don't believe in fate. We don't believe in, in karma. Although many Christians use that phrase, what goes around comes around. Not a biblical idea at all. And God doesn't help those who help themselves. He helps those that, that don't help themselves because we can't help ourselves. That's who God helps. Well, what happens if we embrace the idea that God is 100% good and 100% sovereign? What then? I believe there are six consequences to a strong belief in the sovereignty of God. Here they are, and we're still in the introductory phase to the sermon. But, but what, what is the outcome for us when we believe in the, the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God? Number one, we can have peace. You can have peace because you know God is good and He is sovereign. And you put those two ideas together and it produces peace in your life. If you've just got God is love but not God is sovereign, that does not produce peace. It might produce a sense of empathy. Wow, God suffers along with me. But it doesn't produce peace. It's the belief in the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Secondly, it means we can pray. We can pray. If God is not sovereign, why would we pray? He, he's as powerless to address the situation as we may be. Thirdly, it means we will never be tested beyond what we can bear. Is that how you spell bear? Is it? It is. Okay, I'm good. Just checking. Looked right at the time. We often feel that we're being tested beyond what we can bear. But if you believe in the goodness of God and the sovereignty of God, then this becomes a truth you can hang on to. Fourthly, if you don't believe that God is sovereign, where does that leave you? It leaves you with either Satan being in charge of this world, or, or, or fate, who knows what that is, or where it comes from, or, or, or some kind of karma operating. These are the alternatives to having a God who is sovereign. It means we're stuck in a world that, that is random, where, where disorder, chance, and spirits rule. Is that the kind of world we want to live in? Fifthly, when we believe in the goodness and the, the sovereignty of God, 
We will have confidence to go through life, knowing that the one who is with us can face all things, that we won't be taken into situations that we won't have the grace to go through. Number six is a big one. It means that even suffering has purpose. Suffering is the biggest problem for Christianity. But when you believe in the goodness and in the sovereignty of God, you will know that even whatever suffering you have, God has a purpose for it and is going to use it for your benefit, as hard as it may be to believe that. Just as I was sitting here this morning, I was thinking about Paul's thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was. But it was something that deeply troubled him. It was something that caused suffering in his life. And he prayed repeatedly, well, actually only three times, Lord, take this, this suffering away from me. And God's reply was, no, I've, I've given the suffering to you for your benefit and to serve my greater purpose. These ideas might not be popular, or pleasant, but it is what the Bible teaches. If you don't believe in the sovereignty and goodness of God, that illness, that frustration, that disappointment is just an illness, a frustration, and a disappointment. But if you believe in the sovereignty of God, you will believe that God is at work in this for the good of those that love him. And finally, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, we will believe in divine justice, that there is divine justice. So these are just some of the reasons practically why a belief in the sovereignty of God is, is a blessing for us in, a day, in our day-to-day -day lives. So I want to unpack for you now the biblical grounds for believing in the sovereignty of God. Where do we get this idea from? Well, we've already looked at God's name. When we call him Lord, implicit in that title is the idea that he is Lord of all. He is sovereign. He is the ruler of all things. For many of us, the term Lord Jesus is just a friendly or respectful way about addressing God. But when we say Lord Jesus, we're meaning much more than respect. We're saying he is the, the sovereign. Second source of, of biblical knowledge is the idea in the Bible of God's authority and power over the little things. Over the little things. You know the Bible tells us to consider the sparrow, consider the fields, to look at nature and to learn from nature. In Mark 10, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent, a penny? They're, they're, they're pretty, pretty cheap. Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father. Apart from the will of your Father. Here Jesus is saying that God is so sovereign, God is so powerful, that an insignificant bird in a jungle a thousand miles away that nobody's ever seen, that bird doesn't even move 
apart from the sustaining power of God. Jesus, if you look at the Greek, Jesus is not saying a sparrow doesn't jump and God doesn't know about it. No, he's saying more than that. He says God knows about it and the sparrow can only do that because God's enabling the sparrow to do it. Here's an interesting proverb, particularly for those of you with a secret gambling habit, which I trust is none of you. Proverbs 16, verse 33. And here again, the author's trying to teach us about the power and the sovereignty of God. And so they're, they're picking the most random thing they can think of. And they say, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Even when you throw some dice, the outcome of that, God is sovereign over that. The most small, what appears to us to be random, is an outcome established by God. In the Bible, there's no such thing as chance or coincidence. You just need to read the book of Esther to know that. The, the book of Esther doesn't even mention God's name. But in every chapter, you see God orchestrating events. Even when Haman trips and, and falls into the lap of Esther, and she has a Me Too moment. It's God at work, the, the sovereignty of God at work. Here are some other little things that God exerts over control, that God exerts control over in the Bible. How about a worm? How about a worm? Let's have that verse from Jonah. Remember when Jonah had done his thing and he'd, he'd preached at Nineveh and he thought he was so fantastic and he sat down to give himself a break. And uh, there was this lovely tree and he sat under it and was enjoying the, the shade and patting himself on the back or, or whinging or whatever he was doing at that point. And then we read in Jonah 4 verse 7, But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine. The Bible doesn't say, and he's sitting there, and there just happened to be a worm that chomped this, this tree down in the middle of the night. The, the Hebrew word for provided, it's the word appointed. It means God prepared a worm. Isn't that encouraging? That even worms are under the direct authority and sovereignty of God. If he wants a worm to cut down a tree, the tree will, will drop. It's the same Hebrew word. God appointed a scorching east wind. God is sovereign over the, the winds and the waves. Do you remember when Jesus had a tax problem? No, many of you don't. Matthew chapter 17. He was being accused of, Jesus, why don't you pay your taxes? You, you know all of us Jews need to give some money to the temple and, and pay our taxes. So they come and have a bit of a moan to Peter. Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? 
Peter's like, oh, yes, he does. Don't you accuse Jesus of not paying his tax? Meanwhile, Jesus hasn't actually paid it. Where am I going with the story? So uh, Peter says, well, Jesus is the first to speak. He already knows what's going on. What do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty or taxes? From their own sons or from others? Peter answers correctly, the sons are exempt. Jesus says to him, but so we may not cause offense. offense. Go to the lake, throw out your line, take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you will find a four drachma coin. Boom, taxes paid. It just, I mean, you either believe the Bible or you don't. That's your choice. But if you do believe in the Bible, we're being told here that God can make a fish suck up a coin and be in the right place at the right time to chomp on a line and to resolve a tax issue. Elsewhere in Scripture, we read about God making a whole shoal of school of fish jump into a net. A large fishy animal swallowed Jonah. God made a donkey speak. He, he sent a plague of, of flies and frogs to Pharaoh. These things all illustrate the sovereignty of God over nature in the minor details. Even fish do his bidding. What about God's power over nature as a whole? Well, when he calms the storm, when he creates food out of nothing. I'm going to skip some verses. But we all know that God controls the weather systems. What about God's power over life and death itself? And again, this can be a very hard thing to process. We read in Psalm 139 that human beings aren't randomly created. God uses mysterious processes that, that far beyond our understanding. But whatever processes God uses to make babies, at the end of the day, we're told that he's knitted us together in our mother's womb. All the days, verse 16, ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Why do you have the body that you have? It's because it's what God has, has appointed you, given to you. Try as they might, scientists can't create people. And at this stage, nor can they stop them from dying. God is sovereign over life, its beginning, and its end. What about God's authority over nations and history? And I've preached on this passage before. It's Isaiah 45. God speaking about how he's going to take hold of Cyrus, someone that doesn't acknowledge him. And he's going to use him to do his bidding. Let's have the next slide, please. I'm going to summon you. Next slide. 
God says, I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. As Christians, we love it that God brings prosperity. Do we also embrace the fact that God creates disaster? That doesn't fit too well with some people's theology. It fitted very well with Isaiah's theology. I, the Lord, do all these things. Next slide. Woe to him who quarrels with his maker. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say he has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, what have you begotten? What have you brought to birth? And so it goes on. Sixthly, what about the free will of people? Is God sovereign over the things that people decide to do? I think we often struggle with this one. We think, well, well God couldn't override the, the, the desire and the decision of a person. Of course God can. Of course God can. Here are some scriptures about what the Bible teaches about the human will. Let's have the first one. Proverbs 21, verse 1, very well known. The king's heart is a stream of water in the Lord's hand. He turns it wherever he will. Why does God allow nations to have terrible leaders that get away with murder? Sometimes it's because he's using those leaders to discipline a nation. And to let them experience what it is that they've chosen and want. Life apart from living under the rule of God. We must never just conclude, oh, there's a terrible ruler. Where's God in that situation? No, maybe that is God at work right there. Another translation of the same verse. Back, please. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he pleases. God can, can change the hearts of people. Our next verse. I love this passage in Exodus chapter 10 where it talks about how Pharaoh hardened his heart against what God wanted, well, what appeared to be God wanting his people to be set free. But in this in this passage, we, we hear the Lord saying to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, that I may perform these miraculous signs among them. God wanted Pharaoh to resist his will because he had an even greater purpose of revealing his glory. Something to think about, is it not? I want to conclude with God's sovereignty over evil. Because often we think about evil things and we think, well, where was God? How could God allow that to happen? If God is sovereign, why didn't he stop that terrible thing from happening? And it's often because God has a greater purpose than we can understand I think of the story of Joseph, which is the classic example from the Old Testament. You know what happened to Joseph. He was picked upon by his brothers. 
He was sold as a slave. They told his dad a lion had eaten him. He was, he was falsely accused of, of rape. He went to jail for many years. He was let down by people that were going to make a plan for him and get him out. And years later, when he's reconciled with his brothers, he says to them, don't be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. I mean, we'd all say slavery is a terrible thing. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Next slide, please. In verse 19, we read, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present reality. Do you see that? God can even use evil actions of people, sinning, doing terrible things. God can be sovereign over that and use it to bring about the result He wants. And I think there's possibly one more verse in the story, is there? I assume there isn't, <laughs> which is fine. What about the death of Jesus? God is sovereign over everything, even the unjust death of his own son. Do you think it was an accident that Jesus died? That's what some people teach these days. People lied about Jesus. The Pharisees was, were, were jealous and envious of Jesus, undermining them. They wanted him out of the way. There was a lot of sin happening, a lot of evil happening when Jesus was falsely tried and tortured and crucified. But the Bible writers tell us in Acts 2 verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose. And then in Acts 4, we read this in verse 28. Again, after a description about what people did to Jesus. And here the language is even stronger. Luke tells us, they did... This is God's people praying and talking about the crucifixion. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's quite something to, to take in. All of those sinful actions from Judas betraying Jesus to people lying to, to the men that drove the nails into Jesus' wrists. They did all of that. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This may be hard to understand, but the Bible teaches that God is sovereign over all things the free actions of people that they're still responsible for doing, God is sovereign over that. Let me close with the apostles' teaching, verse 
Ephesians 1, 11. In Him we were chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. It's because of this verse that Paul begins the chapter saying, I'm praying for you. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened, that you will be able to understand that this is God at work in the world. That God is working out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. And I've already referenced Romans 8, verse 28. As you can see in conclusion, the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. That God truly does as He pleases. And I understand there is something slightly offensive in this teaching to the human heart. This idea that I'm not quite as free as I think I am. That I don't have quite as much control over my life as I think I do. The sinful heart wants to feel as though it's free, captain of its destiny, autonomous, independent. The good news is that we are not. There is a way that seems right to a person. Many are the plans of a person's heart, but it is the Lord that directs their steps. The brilliant thing about believing 100% in the goodness of God, and I haven't focused on that today, I've focused on the 100% in the sovereignty of God, but the wonderful thing about believing these two things It's the joy that comes, the peace that comes, the confidence that comes. It means that prayer matters. And that whatever suffering you may experience, God has a, has a plan in it for your good and His glory. Of course, neither Esther nor Job knew what God was doing when stuff was happening in their lives. When Esther approached the king, she wasn't sure whether she'd get the scepter down or up, whether she'd live or die. In that moment, Esther knew nothing of what was going to happen or what God was doing. But God was at work. God was sovereign over that situation. When Joseph was being sold as a slave and dragged off to Egypt in a caravan, not the kind of caravan you might have, He didn't know that God was doing this for, well, he kind of did because God had given him that dream. But you can bet at that point that wasn't in his mind and heart. And did I mention Job? When that righteous man, Job, was experiencing the death of his children, the loss of his little empire, the, the discouragement of his wife, curse God and die. When, when Job was experiencing all of those terrible things, he didn't know that at the end of the day, God was going to be glorified and that God would make it up to him. 
When we're in the moment, we don't know what God is doing. It struck me as I read Psalm 22 this weekend, yesterday. Even Jesus on the cross had a what's going on moment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even as Jesus hung there in, in real time, he perhaps didn't appreciate what was going on. But all of that was, was an outworking of God's sovereign plan. Friends, I know not all of you will agree with everything I've shared today. But my job's not to share with you what you know anyway. It's to challenge your thinking, and if that's happened today, well and good. <laughs> Lord, when we use that title for you, help us to understand it in the biblical sense that you are Lord. Not just of my little life, but that you are Lord. You are the, the, the king of all things. Who can appoint a worm or a fish to do your bidding. That can change the heart of a king's mind on, on an issue. That when nations mock you, you laugh. Help us, Lord, to, to understand the Scriptures, whatever the truth is on this matter. Help us to, to rest in your goodness and your sovereignty, Lord, for it is our hope. Lord, where things are confusing today, we, we pray for the the revelation of your spirit to bring understanding. We pray that the, the eyes of our heart would be, would be open to, to perceive these great truths. Thank you, Lord, that you are powerful enough and great enough to make even our sufferings in this life means of amazing grace. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, worship team, you did such a good job earlier. Would you mind just singing us out with one more song? Thank you.